thought I'd start out and do something a little different this morning. We're going to start out with a love quiz. A Bible love quiz, love in the Bible. If you look on the back of your message insert, the quiz is on the back there. The questions are also going to be up on the screen. And I probably don't have to tell this group this, but you can shout out your answers, okay? First question on the quiz is a form of the word love, that is love or loves or loving or loved, appears how many times in the New Testament? Now, I will tell you, this is the toughest question on the quiz, and it's one where I'm guessing, except for Pastor David, who was in first service, everybody else is going to be guessing because he heard the answer. So any guesses, 143, 452, 287, or 215? You're all right. Yeah, it was 287. <laughs> Very good. Next question, a little bit easier. Deuteronomy 6, 5 states, You shall love the Lord your God with all your blank, blank, and blank. Which of the following is not in the list? Heart, faith, soul, or might? Very good, faith. Give yourself a round of applause, yeah. The third one, 1 Corinthians 13 is often called the love chapter. A lot of times it's used in weddings. It states love is patient, love is such and such and such and so on. Which of the following is not used to describe love in this passage? Kind, humble, is not rude, or never ends. Humble. Very good. You get the joy and satisfaction of knowing that you know your Bible. How's that? <laughs> there you go. Matthew 5.44 states, Love your enemies and blank those who persecute you. Which of the following fills in the blank? Love your enemies and give to those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies and shoot those who persecute you. And nobody read or say that one, okay? Pray for. Very good. Last one, 1 Peter 4.8 reads, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a big bad rash, a hardened heart, a multitude of sins, and us with righteousness. Multitude of sins. Man, you guys are good. So how many of you got five right? Wow. How many got four right? That's good. Good job. Very good. Well, if you've been with us the last couple months or month or so, we've been working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And his message was primarily for his disciples, but it was also for the others who listened in on the hillside that day. When we began this series, we said that the Sermon on the Mount described life in the kingdom of God. In other words, how you and I are to live as members of God's kingdom. The sermon teaches discipleship, discipleship under the authority of Jesus. In other words, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a follower of Christ, you ought to read the Sermon on the Mount, and you ought to take what the Sermon on the Mount take, took those words to heart. And our heart is actually what Jesus was interested in. He seeks to change our heart. And as that it happens, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live for Christ. We start to see the world as God sees it. We rely more on grace. We become light in the darkness. The sermon shows our need for Christ, that we need his love, we need his forgiveness. And the sermon's also a goal for our living. And by that, it definitely goes to the heart. We, 
We'll never perfectly live out the teachings of the, the sermon. And yet we aspire to be more like Christ because if you look at the description of a person in the sermon, you could say it's very well describing Jesus Christ. But we also know that when you and I fall short, that we have forgiveness through Jesus. If you are with us last week, we talked about not retaliating against those who attack us, those who offend us, those who hurt us. Followers of Jesus, we said, are not to keep score of wrongs done against us. We forgive and we leave the ultimate justice up to God. We're compassionate and we bless as we've all been blessed. Then Jesus' next words in the sermon take that idea of not retaliating a step further. This morning we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. You can open up your Bible, that passage, or it's also on the, the backside of your insert. In Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, as you hear those words, I think all of us would agree that Jesus' words there are really challenging. And when we think about love, they're calling us to a, a higher level of love. And Jesus' words might even cause us to wonder, what does it mean to love our enemies? How can we in our personal lives actually love our enemies? And I'd like you to, to kind of keep that question in the back of your mind as we go forward this morning. Jesus was talking about two levels of love here. Two maybe types of love, you could call it almost. And the first type would be called easy loving. And that's what most people do. They do easy loving. The second, though, is Christ-like love. And Christ-like love is different. It is not easy loving. It's the type of love that you and I are called to, to live out as followers of Jesus. So let's start with that more common type of love, easy loving. You know, easy loving, it's supposed to be easy, right? Mary and I have been married for 35 years now, a little over 35 years. We know each other. We've been finishing each other's sentences for decades. We like to do a lot of the same things. Our personalities have even become kind of similar. I've kind of calmed Mary down. <laughs> Darn it. Fortunately for Mary, though, we haven't started to look alike. But see, after 35 years, our loving is starting to come pretty easy. Easy loving also happens here at church. Some of you that are here this morning have known each other for years. You become close friends. You're like family. I know in this church there are people that go on vacation with other church members. You share so much in common, and, the, and of course the most important thing we share in common is our faith in Jesus Christ. We see each other on Sunday mornings. Loving our church, fellow church members should be easy. Easy loving can also happen at work or in school. You know, in, in school or work, you get to know a certain group of people pretty well. 
You've got a common bond. Maybe at work you're on a team together or you're the same department. Or at school, maybe you do some same activities together or you're in the same classes all day. You're held together and so love should come easy, right? The, the people closest to us should be the easiest ones to love. But that's not always the case, is it? You know, a, a, a husband might annoy his wife. Maybe he snores at night. Maybe he watches too much TV. Maybe he never picks up after himself or whatever. Of course, his wife might annoy him too. She always seems to be picking on him. Our kids, our kids contest our patience. And when, we, when they get older, we test their patience by embarrassing them in public, just by being with them in public can embarrass them sometimes. Friends don't always see eye to eye. People at work make us angry. Even in the church, there are times when we get on each other's nerves. We disagree. We have different opinions, and we think our opinion is the right one and that everyone needs to hear it. It really comes down to this. Whenever you put two sinners or a group of sinners together in any kind of relationship, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be problems. And so the, even what might be the easiest type of love, it requires effort. Love is learned. It requires seeing the good in another person. It doesn't criticize. It puts the needs of the other first. Like Paul said, love is patient. Love is kind. And yes, love also is humble. When you realizing, realize that how loving those people most like us, the ones closest to us, isn't always easy, it actually makes the rest of Jesus' message to us this morning even that much tougher. Jesus started off by saying, said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus said, love your neighbor. You might think of our neighbors on our street. That could be easy love, but sometimes we don't like our neighbors. Then Jesus said something. He said, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. Now, when we hear that, you know what? A lot of us think that is something that I can do. In fact, I'm good at hating. I kind of enjoy hating my enemies. If you think about it, hating enemies is something that's become very popular in politics. It's always been there, but it's even getting more so. And as we think about this, and Jesus said, you've heard it said, hate your enemies. Where is that in the Bible? Well, there are actually times in the Old Testament when God commanded the Israelites to destroy their enemies. In Deuteronomy 30, God promised to curse Israel's enemies. Psalm 11.5 says this, it says, The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates those who love violence. And even in the book of Revelation, there are cheers, there are applause when Babylon, which is the symbol of rebellion against God, it's the symbol of evil, evil. There are cheers when Babylon falls by God's judgment. And so some could look at the Bible and look at that and say, you know what? You Christians are a bunch of haters. But that wouldn't be true, right? You know, I recently read a, a good way to understand how to deal with evil and how to deal with with this whole thing of wickedness. This writer said this, he said, when you and I look at, a wicked, look at the wicked as a class of people from, from an eternal perspective, our love for them ceases. What he was saying is one day the wicked are going to face God's wrath. 
But then this writer goes on and he says, but in our daily living, you and I have no right to adopt that eternal perspective. He says, we can't classify people. The man that's standing right in front of us may be wicked, but we don't know that one day he might repent and come to Christ. We've said it before, you and I aren't the judges. We can't look at a person and automatically condemn them. I mean, think about the Apostle Paul. When Paul was known as Saul, he was out to destroy Christians. He was a, excuse me, he was a feared enemy. And then one day Jesus appears to him, and everything changes. Paul, Saul becomes Paul, and he becomes one of us. In fact, Paul became one of the greatest Christians to ever live. And as we think about Paul, it helps us maybe understand this next statement better. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to love the people that oppose us. It's a, a higher level of love. It's, it's a kind of love that we need God to help us be able to, to, to show. See, loving our enemies is the what I'd call the second type of love. It's Christ-like love. Something happened in the news last week. I saw it on, on uh, social media. Maybe some of you have se- heard about this too. And I think as I, as I saw this, I think it was a really good picture of Christ-like love. At, at a Sunday afternoon football game between the Dallas Cowboys and the the Packers, a photographer spotted former President George W. Bush seated, seated next to Ellen DeGeneres. And they were seen talking and laughing and enjoying each other's company. And the fact of the matter is Ellen took a whole lot of heat on social media for sitting next to George. You know, some people are just so intolerant. The criticism Ellen faced was so intense that she decided to defend her friendship with George on her TV show. She did it the very next day. And this is what Ellen said, her own words. She said, when we were invited, I was aware that I was going to be surrounded with people from very different views and beliefs. And she said, I'm not talking about politics. I was rooting for the Packers. And of course, she was in cowboy country. But then she noted, she said, some people were upset. And she continued, she said, yes, that was me at the Cowboys game with George W. Bush over the weekend. And she said, here's the whole story. She said, those people thought, why is a, a gay Hollywood liberal sitting next to a conservative Republican president? She said, a lot of people were mad. And she continued, she said, here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think we've forgotten that it's okay that we're all different. Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. And I have to admit, when I read that, I was surprised. I was pleasantly surprised because I applaud Ellen. You know, like George Bush, Ellen and I may not have a lot in common. But what happened between her and George W. was a picture of that love, I think, that Jesus was talking about. You know, in a sense, you could say, here's two people on opposite ends of the political spectrum. It was like loving your enemy. Two people who shared very little common ground were enjoying each other's company and are friends. 
Now I've got to ask you a question. Can you imagine Nancy Pelosi and President Trump enjoying each company at a Washington Nationals playoff game this week? Probably not. Pastor David gave me one between services. Can you imagine if, if Stan Kroenke came and showed up here at church that we would celebrate him and enjoy his company? I think Pastor David said he read where he's the most hated person in St. Louis. We're supposed to love our enemy. And I actually thought this was a step further, but maybe it's not anymore with Stan. But can you imagine a Cardinals and a Cub fan actually loving each other? There is proof of Christ-like love. See, love is a verb. Love requires action. The way Jesus used it in the Greek, love requires continuous action, ongoing action. It doesn't stop. And that action takes place in outward deeds, things we do, but it also takes place in inward attitudes, what's going on in our heart. Jesus said to pray for our enemies. You know, here's, here's a prayer I thought we could pray for an enemy. God, I hope you get him. I hope you show him what a bad person he is. I hope, God, that you just reveal your wrath on him full force. That's not the kind of prayer Jesus was suggesting. We pray for our enemies good. We pray with compassion. And yes, we certainly pray that if they don't know Jesus, that they would one day come to know him as their Lord and Savior. We also pray that God would instill in us compassion and forgiveness. And as we do that, we still hold firmly to the truth of the Bible. We can love people different from us and still hold to the truth of the Bible. Jesus said, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now you read that last part and you put it with the first part, that part in the white on the screen there, and, and you could say, you know what, that sounds a little bit like works righteousness. The idea that I have to do certain things, I have to be good to be made right with God. So, Jesus, are you telling me that i got to love my enemies and i got to pray for those who persecute you if I want to be your child, if I want to be saved? Well, that's not quite what Jesus was saying because Jesus was saying what we do because we are saved, because we are his child, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. We, what we do demonstrates that we are children of God. You know, we've we said this many times, our belief leads to behavior. What goes on, what you and I believe in our heart shows up in how we act. And so if we love the Lord with our strength and our might and our soul, it's going to show up in how we love other people. And God also shows love for those who are far off from him. And Jesus revealed that in his next words. He said he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus there was providing an example of something that's called common grace. And, and common grace means that God will reveal his love to those who love him and to those who hate him. He cares for those who have accepted his son and those who still live in rebellion. Of course, there will be a day of judgment, but right now, we both, both those who reject Jesus and love Jesus, both experience his love. And we're to do the same. Our love is to go above and beyond the, the easy loving that we share with our friends and our family. 
The pagans and the tax collectors loved each other. But we're to love when we get nothing in return. We love when it's inconvenient. Christ-like love makes a difference. If you remember back to Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, he told this story, and it actually demonstrated how love can make a difference. Remember in the story, there was a man who had been beaten and robbed, and he'd been left on the side of the road for dead. Religious people, good people avoided helping. But then a Samaritan showed up. And Jesus said, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you might have. Now when Jesus finished telling that parable, I wonder if there might have been some gasps in the audience. I can almost imagine a woman whispering, did he really say that a Samaritan was the one who came to the rescue? Yeah, I think he did. I can't believe it. Not not a Samaritan. Now, we might not understand the the shock of Jesus' parable. To us, calling someone a Samaritan may not carry any meaning at all. But to a Jewish person back there, a Samaritan was the lowest form of human life. The hatred between Jews and Samaritans went back over 400 years. It centered on racial purity. The Samaritans were the result of intermarriage between the Jewish people and the Assyrians who had invaded the Jewish land. And so a Samaritan literally came from sleeping with the enemy. They even had their own religion. And if that wasn't enough, during Jesus' life, some Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria. Another time, Samaritans had defiled the Jewish temple. The Jewish people thought of Samaritans like you and I might think about terrorists. And here we've got Jesus telling this story, telling this parable, and he has the nerve to say that it was a scum of the earth Samaritan who came to the rescue. It was a pagan terrorist who showed compassion. It was an enemy who showed what it means to love, to love with a Christ-like love. Jesus finished his teaching on loving our enemies with these words. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, if like me, you read that and you go, seriously? I mean, isn't loving my enemies enough now? Now, Jesus, you're telling me I got to be perfect just like God's perfect? Tall order. Now, the word translated as perfect there can also mean mature. And at first, you know what, I've, I've heard it explained, you know, that might sound a little easier to be mature, but think about it. If you change the word perfect, take that out and put the word mature in there, you've got this. Be mature, therefore, as your heavenly Father is mature. It's not much better, is it? Jesus said that we have to be mature as God. And you know what, I would have preferred it if Jesus said I had to be as mature as a 13-year-old. Because I could do that. But what Jesus was pointing out there is that perfection is our goal. Perfect love is our goal. 
Jesus is our model. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We grow towards that goal. We don't attain it in this life. And that's why Jesus came. That's why we're so thankful for Jesus' cross and his resurrection. Jesus' perfection allowed him to save us. And that perfection points you and I towards our future hope. 1 John 3, 2 and 3 says it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now. That's us. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, and it's talking about Jesus, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We're going to be like Jesus in some ways when he returns. We won't be Jesus. But we will love perfectly. And we will be perfectly loved. One day there was a a father and his son and they were out in the backyard and the dad was playing catch with the little boy and he was teaching him how to throw a baseball. The dad was providing gentle instruction. He was patient. He was encouraging. And the little boy was trying his best. Sometimes his throws made it to where his dad could catch him, but sometimes they fell short or they went far to the left or they went over his head. But the boy kept trying. And dad kept encouraging. And little by little, he kept getting better. And when it was time to go inside, the little guy looked up at his dad and said, Dad, I want to be just like you. When we follow Jesus, we're going to have times of great success. We're also going to have times of great failures. Our love won't always measure up, but we don't quit. We ask God to help. We tell our Heavenly Father, we say, Dad, I want to be just like you. Heavenly Father, we ask, teach us to love like Jesus loves. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you 